0: So we're in in John chapter 3, beginning with the 22nd verse, as we're working our way through this. I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard uh, 2020 edition, and there's some differences if you have an NIV and HIV, HSV, excuse me, uh, what's HIV? Never mind. The Holman International Version, okay, the New International Version, the, uh, the Holman Christian Standard, which is now the Christian Standard Bible or the English Standard Bible, some of it's going to read differently. I'll get to that, okay. Um, but let me read to you out of the uh, New American Standard. By the way, the New American Standard and the New King James is pretty consistent uh, together on this particular part of John 3. It says, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea And there he was spending time with them and baptizing. Now, John is referring to John the Baptist also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was an abundance of water there and the people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been been thrown in prison. Boy, is that an understatement? If he's out baptizing, obviously he's not in prison, there's a reason why John says that, though. John the Apostle says that. I'll get to that as well. Then a matter of dispute developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew. Some of your trans- translations may have Jews plural. But there was a dispute on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John. And they said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified. Now they're talking about Jesus. Behold, he is baptizing and all the people are coming to him. John replied, a person cannot receive or a person can receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the friend of the groom, who stands and listens to him, rejoices greatly because of the groom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this passage. Lord, it's just chock full of really good spiritual doctrine for how we are to live our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding, fill us with your spirit, that we might hear what the spirit would say to each of us this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So this little passage begins with that little phrase, after these things, which is a, really a favorite phrase of John. John actually uses it as well in the book of Revelation. It really is referring to a shift in what is going on in the story. And I, I consider this more of a theological shift than either a chronological or even a geographical shift. Although the first part of the Gospel of John in chapter 3, the setting is in Jerusalem. Passover has now ended. And after the things of his time in Jerusalem, at least his first time in Jerusalem, it says that he went into the land of Judea. Now, if you have an ESV or a Christian Standard Bible or a new international version it says that he went into the Judean countryside, which actually might be a better translation. Because where is Jerusalem located? Judea. So he's already in Judea proper, if you will. But what this is trying to tell us is that he's moved out of Jerusalem and probably gone into either the countryside the literal translation of the of the of the Greek in this is the region of Judea. That's how you would translate it. He's moved away, from, moved off from Jerusalem. He might be in one of the smaller cities, or he could be in the countryside. We're not exactly sure. But he's spending time with them, and he's baptizing, which is the way the grammar is structured. It gives the impression that. Jesus himself was doing the baptizing. Now, we're going to get to chapter 4 in a bit. And it tells us in verse 2 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, it says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, rather his disciples were. So, it's not a contradiction. It's just John in chapter 3 is using this blanket statement that the Jesus in his ministry is baptizing people, but he's not the one doing the baptizing. See, these are things that some of the critics, if, they're, if they read carefully enough, that they try to use to criticize the gospel here. The ministry of Jesus is baptizing people for the, for the, um, for the, uh, because they had repented for the remission of their sins. And, of course, baptism does not save you. As the, the, the pastor of the church that both Mary and I grew up in, uh, he was an interesting man on many accounts. Um, um, but one of the things he would say that if you haven't repented, if you haven't received Christ as Lord and Savior, if you haven't prayed and asked him into your life, you basically go down a wet, uh, you go down a dry center and you come up a wet center because baptism doesn't save you. But baptism is essentially kind of the seal of the process. I, I've talked with people and they concerned me that they want to receive Christ and they have received Christ. So they have told me, but they don't want to be baptized. Again, it doesn't save you, but it's part of the obedience of walking in him. And one of the things that he's called us to do is to be baptized. We see that in the book of Acts chapter 2, which I'm not going to take the time to unpack this morning but again it's 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 this idea of this this kind of the ceiling of the deal I, I've made a commitment to follow Jesus, I prayed to receive him, and I'm demonstrating my commitment by being obedient to his commands and one of those is to be baptized, which obviously, if you are baptized here, you're serious about your commitment to follow Christ because I've baptized people in, like, 38-degree water, and it, it, you know, because we, we'd go out to this creek or we, we'd go to Subtle Lake, and it's, it's cold out there. I remember one time, uh, one, one man, thank God, he, he provided wetsuits for us, right? Remember that, county? We had wetsuits, and so it wasn't, wasn't nearly as bad, uh, but, uh, yeah, there's a, a sense of commitment. I still remember seeing a picture of Kaylee with her mouth just wide open as she's coming out of the water, and it wasn't out of it. I think the ecstatic look on her face was because it was so cold, you know. But uh, anyway. Um, but Jesus is out, and he's baptizing. He is drawing a crowd. People are coming to him because they want to hear the good news of the gospel. John is still baptizing. John the Baptist, that is. John has already identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this fascinates me because I don't understand why he's still baptizing. Because wouldn't after he identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, being his ministry was that of the forerunner. John was the forerunner. Why didn't he just give up his preaching ministry and just follow Jesus? We read earlier in the Gospel of John that a couple of his disciples, in fact, did that. When when Jesus is walking by and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was with two disciples. One of them was Andrew. The other one, it is believed, although it is not proven, but it is believed that it is the Apostle John. They leave John and they go and follow Jesus. But according to this passage, John is still preaching, John is still baptizing, and he still has disciples. Doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand. I'll offer a partial explanation. He goes to Anon, which is close to Salem. So I looked it up on the map. And it's that area that's south of uh, of. The Sea of Galilee, by a way, is this? I think it's south of Bethany as well. Not the Bethany next to Jerusalem, but the the Bethany up north. It's in an area known as Samaria. What's special about the Samaritans? Now, the Jews back then thought the Samaritans, you know what was special about the Samaritans? They made good kindling for the fires of hell. That was what was special about the Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans. John is continuing his forerunner ministry, leaving the area of Judea and now going into Samaria. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, where does Jesus and his disciples go next chapter? Chapter 4. The woman at the well. They go to Samaria. John's the forerunner. John is announcing his arrival. John had not yet been put in prison, it tells us. Well, no kidding. If he's out in that area preaching and baptizing, no, he would. But why did John put that there? Now, think about this, and we probably should have done a map. I'm not really good on videos, and I apologize for that. But think about this for a second. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. That's in Judea, also known as the southern kingdom. We see that in chapter 3. Then he goes out beyond Jerusalem into the countryside or another town in Judea. In chapter 4, he has to go through Samaria. Where, what direction is that? North. He's heading for the area known as the Galilee. He's working his way north, and he's beginning his Galilean ministry. See, Bible commentators and such, they love to categorize all this, right? And to me, it's kind of interesting. But Jesus has not yet begun his Galilean ministry. What does this have to do with John not being in prison? Let me get there for you. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. I'm not going to turn there, but if you want to, go right ahead it tells us essentially that Jesus began his Galilean ministry after John had been thrown into prison. John chapter 3, Jesus is in Judea. John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling northward to begin his Galilean ministry. What this tells me is that really particularly the, the narrative that we've been reading from John chapter 2 that we will read all the way into John chapter 4 took place before the book of Mark was even before the, the uh, time frame that the book of Mark recorded. In other words, this is the earliest of early ministries that Jesus had that John and only John records for us. So this is a very special passage here. Does that make sense? Because later on, John will be thrown in prison. And when John is thrown in prison, of course, I'm talking about John the Baptist, then Jesus will finally be in the northern region of the Galilean area, which was settled primarily by Jews whom descendants were from the southern kingdom, but they ended up up north, Okay, people moved around some, not like they do today, but they moved around some. And Jesus will begin his Galilean ministry then, which is the bulk of his ministry, of his three, three and a half years on earth. Excuse me, of his three, three and a half years earthly ministry. Okay, all right, we're back. All right, so that's why John throws this little tidbit. John had not, John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. What fascinates me is that what you have here, and I I don't title my sermons, but if I were going to title this, I would call it The Tension of Transition. The Tension of Transition. Don't raise your hand. Who likes change? Or don't raise your hand. Who hates change? Especially when it meets you unaware. And it meets you before you're ready for it. A lot of people don't like change. Kids don't like change. We always say old people don't like change, right? Young kids, young kids, all right, children don't like, some of them, they lose it when there's change, don't they? The tension of transition. It says, there is a matter of dispute, verse 25, developed on the part of John's disciples with a Jew. We have singular, with a Jew, bless you, a Jew singular about purification some of the manuscripts and therefore some of your bibles will write, will have jews plural which is right i don't know guess what i don't care that is it could have been one jew it could have been a bunch of jews We're, bless you we uh, uh we don't even um uh we don't even know what was the motive behind this, this argument? But I have some speculation. You want to let me kind of speculate a little bit this morning? Doesn't mean I'm right, but I'm going to speculate. John's ministry is possibly starting to decline. Possibly. For goodness sake, he's up preaching to Samaritans. He's not even talking to Jews anymore. Talking to Samaritans. Of course, Jesus will do that next chapter. Wonderful dialogue with the woman at at the well at Sychar. It could be, now there's a little bit of speculation in this, but it could be that his ministry was starting to decline and and some of his disciples had left him to follow Jesus. Which, by the way, they should have. And Jesus' ministry is starting to have increase. It's starting to get momentum. It's starting to gain attention. And it could have been that this Jew, who had just kind of tagged along somehow, decides he wants to pick a fight with the disciples. So he talks to them about purification. Now that should take you in your mind back to John chapter 2, with the wedding feast of Canaan, where Jesus turns the water into wine, and he, the water was contained in pots that were used for what ritual, ceremonial, purification, or bathing it 's a sign that was one of the, the, the really the first sign that Jesus gave us. Regarding that this change as something that was common something that was pertaining to the law and it becomes what it becomes a symbol of joy because if you read the Old Testament as I, I know some people who, who completely abstain they, they get bothered by this. But you cannot deny that in the Old Testament particularly in the Psalms wine is a symbol of joy. It is. And. It's a symbol that, again, what was once this, this, this purification rite that you had to go through, that you had to submit to, now becomes the fact that you've been called, I have been called, we have been called to walk in the joy of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. But this Jew wants to fight it out with him about this idea of cleansing and this idea of purification and, and whether they had washed their hands properly, according to Torah, Jesus is going to run into this later. And they're picking, this guy's picking a fight with them. And, you know, I can imagine it was this tit-for-tat argument, right? Well, you do this. Well, you do this. Well, you don't wash your hands well. Well, guess what? You still believe in Torah, right? And and you're following Torah at the expense of a relationship with the creator of, of the universe, I, and I thought about this because my, our, my dear little granddaughter, who is 22. Ah. Um, anyway, she's, when she was little, I love this story about her. Um, now, I don't know where you're at with Santa Claus, all right? But I'm going to tell this story. When she was young, like she early figured out there was no such thing as Santa Claus. She figured it out early, and she was the only one of her friends who... Understood that now if you still believe in Santa Claus we probably need to talk later, but anyway uh, So she gets in a fight with one of her little friends Well, and as I can imagine it was well, you're dumb. Well, you're dumber, you know back and forth. Oh, yeah, well, you're so dumb. You still believe in Santa Claus She said that to her little friend Her little friend lost it Goes running home crying to mom and dad dad calls our son um, Josh can I talk to you, you know, but it was like hey the cat's out of the bag, you know and, and and my little granddaughter won up her with the truth, by the way. And I was proud <laughs> sorry, I was proud of her actually, but anyway, burst that bubble, you know. And that's probably what was going on here. Well, you don't do this, well, you don't do this. So what did they do? They the, the disciples of John they go run into John saying, Rabbi, you know what's interesting about fact that they called him rabbi? This is the only place in John's gospel where the term rabbi refers to someone else other than Jesus. Were they trying to elevate John the Baptist beyond what he was called to be elevated to? I don't know. It's possible. But nonetheless, they go and run to the teacher. Rabbi! He who is with you beyond the Jordan, whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all the people are coming to him. I love that. All the people. All the people. You ever hear that? Ever use that? Everyone. All of them. You know, it's an exaggeration. But the thing is, what I think we sometimes don't realize that when you are emotionally distraught, you are prone to exaggerate. I think some people more than others. So obviously this attack from this Jew upon the disciples of John the Baptist had to do with the credibility of John's ministry. Well, if if you're so good, then why is everybody following Jesus now? Do you see how this argument was rooted in biblical ignorance? Serious ignorance. I, I, you know, I, I'm reading the Proverbs. Um. I think it was Friday nights. Basically, talked about which that would be what Proverbs thirteen. Um, it, it talked about don't even listen to a fool. Don't even listen to a fool. Walk away from them, essentially. That's my paraphrase. And and really, if you read the the Proverbs, he does have a lot to say about how we are to engage. Now, hopefully, we're not foolish people ourselves. But how, do how we are to engage with fools. Over and over again, the Proverbs really tell us don't have anything to do with them. You know, and, and, and how... Uh, uh, How bad it is for someone who acts foolishly, who speaks foolishly, who lives foolishly. This was a foolish argument. And the disciples of John gave heed to him. Can I say this to you? And I hope you quote me. How's that? Some people are not worth answering. They're just not. Now, I came here almost 20 years ago. We both came here. Almost, gosh, I can't believe it's been that long. Anyway, and I had this idealistic sense that I could minister to everybody. Now, that lasted for like the first week we were here. And it's like, what were we thinking, you know? You can't minister to everybody. Some people are not worth listening to. Now, you want to give people, you want to give them the opportunity, give them, give them that, that space to, to, to allow them to grow in their relationship to Christ and not judge anything too hastily. But this was an argument that just riled up these disciples of John. But I'm grateful to it. Why? Because it brought out for us John's response in the tension of transition. Jesus' ministry is on the, on the rise. John's ministry could be on the decline. It's not too far from this time that he eventually does get thrown in prison. And of course, the disciples want to protect their teacher i i've there are, how do I say this nicely because I know some of you well never mind um, there are certain teachers in the body of Christ that to me, they, they just have gotten incredibly harsh. And I think unnecessarily. And some, I'm even thinking of some of them that I know that you've mentioned that you like them, and that's fine. But to me, they're incredibly harsh. And, and it's, but the, the problem with, with a harsh message, first of all, it's tainted with the flesh. It is. It's tainted with the flesh. But second of all, The disciples of those teachers are far more zealous than the teacher themselves. And, oh, are they a pain to deal with. And if you're wondering who I'm talking about, please don't ask me later because I'm not going to tell you. Okay? (laughs) Some of you probably already know. But the disciples can be even harsher than the teacher at times. Because there is this, it's an incredible emotional investment. And we want those dividends for goodness sake. So John responds to them. He says a person can receive not even one thing unless it has been given to him from God. Which is where I'm going to camp and where I'm going to stay and where we're going to finish this morning. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from God. He tells us that we don't have the capacity to receive anything, and boy, I really want to get. I, I was looking for loopholes on this one because I don't. I don't like it. I don't like what John is saying here. It's a hard truth is what it is. And, and is, is that to me that everything that everybody has, and, and the context is ministry oversight is what it is, but I think it, I think it boils down or trickles down to, to our everyday lives as well. And we have such a skewed view of what success is. And what sometimes, I get so tired of the word sometimes, is a blessing. You know, it's like, I want to tell some people, you wouldn't even know what a blessing is if it bit you in the nose, for goodness sake. For goodness sake, Jesus said if they persecuted him, they would persecute us. How much of a blessing is that? Well, obviously, the early church understood it. The book of Acts tells us they counted it joy that they were found worthy to suffer for his namesake. Now, that is a very different blessing than what we want to expect in 2023, isn't it? I mean, really. But a person cannot receive anything what this grammar here is, is, is uh, present tense, if you want to know, is it refers to this continuous action a person cannot continually receive unless it is given them by God. But what's fascinating about it is an active voice type of verbal construction, which means that the person is also participating in that receiving Person cannot receive anything unless it has been given. Which is given to us in a perfect tense. And I were something that happened in your past, but affects you in your present. It happened in your past, but it affects you today. Unless it has been given by God. Does this apply in every circumstance and in every way and in every time? Is it universal? I was looking. This is where I was looking for loopholes. Turn with me to Philippians 1. Right around verse 15. Paul is in prison when he writes this letter. A matter of fact, in verse 14, he talks about being in chains. And then in verse 15, he says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Can you imagine that? Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Wow. And some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition. That word can be translated in the Greek. A political ambition. I used to say you could see that. Very frequently in denominationalism. Is equally as pervasive. In non-denominationalism as well. In the church today. Some. The former preach from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is priest. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. I think Paul had been in prison a bit too long when he wrote this. At least it reads that way to most of us, if we're going to be honest. Here he is, he's got people that are out preaching the gospel as a way of being a thorn in his side. And he's rejoicing over it. What he's saying, I don't care about the motive, I'm just happy that the gospel is being preached. Because he recognizes that a man can receive nothing unless it is given him by God. And at that time in his life, what was given to him? Prison. How fun is that? Now, if you know much about Paul's story, he's probably later released... This is after he goes to Rome, after the book of Acts. He's probably later released, He goes out to Spain for a while, probably re-arrested, and then he is martyred. These are some of the early church writings talk about this. But he was not concerned about someone else's political ambitions to preach the gospel. I have to remind myself of that every time that someone comes to this town and plants a new church. Which I think I've seen nine of them come and go since I've been here. Because as much as I think I have discernment, as much as you think you have discernment, as much as we think we are discerning people, and doggone it, we are, aren't we? Right? Right? There's so much we don't know. We can't look into what's going on into the soul of another person. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? That's an interesting question. That's a question we probably ought to ask ourselves time and time again. What did you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? In other words, why do you boast in such a way that you feel like you've attained this yourself? These are hard questions for us to ask. These are hard questions for us to sit in. But 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 John the Baptist is speaking here a truth that a man, a person can receive nothing unless it is given to him by God. It's this recognition for God's sovereignty. And the the thing is, it is this reminds it for me to, to focus not on what God has given someone else. Of course, I don't usually put it in that context. I want to focus on what that person is taken for themselves. Which is a hard place to go. It's a hard place to live, actually. But to recognize that my calling, your calling, our calling, is to be people who are truly committed to following Jesus and magnifying him. And if that is the case then what John the Baptist said here in John chapter 3 is true. We can receive nothing unless it is given to us by God. Our wealth, our health, our circumstances. Let me flip it. Even our poorness in spirit. Even our poverty of spirit. Even our financial. Poverty that this is a strong recognition of the sovereignty of God. I remember one time we were years ago I was having trouble paying bills um, we were just got overwhelmed, and I started praying and god what what do I do help me and after praying i don 't remember how long I prayed it was maybe a week or two or whatever anyway. All of a sudden, I get a phone call, and there was a man who wanted me to come work for him on weekends. I've been praying for money. Someone's called me and says, I want you to come work weekends for me. I can't work on weekends. I go to church. Wait a minute. I just prayed that God would provide. Someone called and wants me to work for him all weekend. And and so, yes, i worked all weekends. I did make it to Sunday night, okay? I did make it. <laughs> all right? And one time I got home and my wife says, oh, by the way, I said yesterday you're leading worship tonight. You've got to leave in a half an hour. Okay, um, yeah, covered with paint, right? And so if you're in a situation you don't like, ask God to change it, but don't, don't strive in the power of your own flesh to do so. Because a man, a person can receive nothing unless it is given to him by God. And I think that is completely true for us who really desire to follow Jesus and to walk in in ways and to magnify him. And that means we have to redefine what success and blessing are. Because we rip ourselves off when we, we attach ourselves to an understanding of what the world says about what blessing and success is and what a lot of the church, God bless them all, but anyway, what a lot of the church says about what success and blessing is. Because we do not, Boy, oh, I really want to get going. I've got another 30 minutes in me, but I'm going to stop soon, okay? We do not apprehend the fellowship of his sufferings as given to us in the book of Philippians chapter 3. And we don't want it. And I can't blame us. I get it. Second of all, we do not always have the ability to assess what's going on with other people. Uh, Oh, I hate that. It bugged me to type that out. Because I think I have discernment, and therefore I can figure this stuff out. And God gives me supernatural revelation to look into the hearts and souls. And that's not always true. We walk in part. We see in part. We prophesy in part. We understand in part. 1 Corinthians 13. But when that who is perfect has come, we will know as we are known. It's talking about the second coming of Christ, I believe. So a person cannot receive anything unless it's been given to him by God. So that which he has given us, that which he has put on our plate, use it to glorify him because John understood, I may even hit here next week, John understood in verse 30, he must increase but I must decrease. And that isn't a whole lot of fun either. But it is not only the reality of the life and calling and this incredible ministry of John the Baptist, but it is the life and it is the calling of you and I. He must increase and I must decrease. That's what we're called to do. Those are the lives that we are called to live in each and every aspect of who we are as people, to put Christ first. John 3.30, that would be a great one to put right here. I'm convinced. Just to remind me. He must increase. We must decrease. That he might be glorified. And you know what? If 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 you live by that, and I'm going to close with this. If you live by that, he's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you. He hasn't dropped anybody yet. Even though at times it sure feels like he's dropped us, but he hasn't dropped any of us yet. He is faithful, Philippians 1, to complete that which he's finished in each one of you. He's faithful. Thank God he's faithful. Amen.